Everything Just Changed is back, sort of. We're getting ready to release season three, and it's taken a little bit longer than anticipated. Thanks so much to everybody who has emailed and tweeted, etc. over the last couple of weeks. We will be back. Brad and I have been recording episodes and interviews, and we can't wait to share those with you. If you've been listening to our podcast for a while, you know that our goal is to help you navigate faithfulness to Jesus in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world, and we've been exploring this concept that faithfulness to Jesus looks like following our King into His kingdom way of living, but individualism is wreaking havoc on Western society. We see it in both the left and right sides of the political cultural spectrum. On the left, it looks like secularism, wanting the fruits of the kingdom while rejecting the king. And on the right, we see evangelicalism pledging allegiance to the king while largely rejecting his kingdom. And so we're excited to bring you season three of our podcast because we're going to begin to explore some solutions. If individualism is the problem, and we've defined individualism as the attempt to achieve our dignity, value, and worth on our own, then the solution is to receive our identity rather than achieve it. But how do you actually do that? We're going to get into that in season three, which is coming very soon. But first, to help you get ready, we've got a quick intermission episode for you today. As you know, unless you've been living under a rock on January 6th, there was an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., where these very dynamics that we've been exploring played out in the most dramatic way imaginable, the brick-and-mortar institution of the U.S. Congress under assault from a web of individuals. Over the last years, the pandemic has heightened tensions at the familial and local levels, but also all the way up to the national, political, and cultural level. Brad and I have been tracking the polarization between individualism on the right and individualism on the left. And then January 6th happened, and there's an insurrection incited by the president. And we have to talk about this, Brad. We don't we don't want to get more into the news. We know that there is plenty of kind of reporting on what has happened, just the facts, the people on the ground storming the Capitol and all that went into that. But what we want to do today is sort of look at some of the undercurrents that enabled this thing to happen because it really speaks to the way that institutions do or fail to shape our identities. Yeah, it was almost as if 2021 told 2020 to hold its beer. And um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I've been telling people uh, in December that like, you know, whoever, you know, every, anytime somebody's like 2021 is going to be great. Like it can't be any worse than 2020. And I kept telling them, as soon as you say that you're guaranteeing that to not be the case. Right. Um, and what we want to do today is, is not sit here and describe kind of what we would, we could summarize as the symptoms of, of a cultural climate change, right? We don't want to describe and dig into the, uh, rising sea levels, melting ice caps, more volatile dynamic weather, and you know greater instance and frequency of of weather events. We don't even want to necessarily talk about the rising temperature that is behind all of that. What we want to talk about is is kind of one level deeper and and ask what are the the things that are contributing to like the um, if I stretch the analogy too far, the carbon emissions that are causing the temperature to rise in the first place. Yeah. And we've been talking so much, Bryce, off and on 
over last fall. It has kept coming up. It came up with David French. It came up with Mark Sayers and everything he has been talking about with a networked world. And it is getting harder and harder not to see the role of social media. Um, but, but in particular, like, even as I say that, I'm really aware that it is a really popular, uh, cool thing to do to beat up on social media. But there is an argument that we would like to make that is very different from many of the ones that are have been made so far, but actually kind of function pretty well as an umbrella explanation in my mind. Um, and that is the way that it functions as a counterfeit institution. Yes, yes. And so, gosh, to just kind of sketch the broad outlines um, public life everywhere, but public life in America has been largely shaped by its institutions for much of its history. And so, you know, institutions, uh, government institutions, uh, churches, schools, um, you know, the YMCA, you know, social organizations that people, uh, you know, you, you, I, I think about my grandparents' generation as people who um, were shaped by institutions that really helped organize our public public life in America. Now, I remember in, gosh, it would have been the late 90s when kind of the early, you know, you remember, Brad, I don't know if you remember this because you're a couple years younger than me, but like getting uh-huh. a CD where you could install America online on oh your computer, gosh. right? These kind of like early, early social media, like they wouldn't call them social media platforms at the time, but it was like the early internet. And and the promise was always, the analogy that was always used was that of the digital village, that mm. we're going to be connected to everyone. And it was going to... Um, kind of lead to this age of like everything's going to be great because now we can all be in touch with each other all the time. And yet some of that's happened, but it hasn't had that effect. It's like now we're all connected and it's awful, right? And so <laughs> careful so, what you so, wish for. <laughs> so what, what has happened is that we've gone from like brick and mortar institutions that shape public life. And for some very good reasons, um, you know, the deals made in dark back rooms, we have rejected and moved away from brick and mortar institutions, but we've replaced that with this like spider web where everything's connected and you touch one part of the web and it affects everything in this networked age. Well, yeah, and let's, 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 let's even pause there and, and give some more depth to what we are, are claiming with that too, because, um, this is this is a analogy that can almost not be pressed too far. Like it just continues to <laughs> to, to to bear fruit for how effective it is. And and with this brick and mortar analogy, institutions just like brick and mortar buildings, they can take a beating. Right? You can punch a hole not with your fist, but with something. Right? You can pitch a punch a hole through a brick and mortar wall, and someone on the other side of the building may not even notice that it happened. Right. Mm-hmm. It's stable. It's it, that the connections are highly cemented. Um, you're not going to threaten its structural integrity. And those who are taking refuge uh, or shelter within its walls, they'll be fully aware that a storm is raging outside, but they won't feel nearly so threatened by it. They they can take a lot of confidence in those walls providing the shelter that it needs. And you're yeah, there so just on your own. Let's break down that analogy into real terms. So you might be an employee of, you know, a large corporation and the CEO is uh, accused of scandal and removed from his position and your job continues largely unaffected. 
in that sort of an environment? Is that, is that the sort of thing that you're, that you're, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that works on an organizational level. So that's, that's part of the way toward an institutional definition, but, but I would even say that, um, some of the best, like some of the most pure examples of institutions we have are like high church traditions, you know, whether they're, uh, Lutheran or Anglican, Episcopal, Catholic, right. Those churches are organized by parish, by their social their social place in the social broader social fabric. They're not necessarily led by a, a dynamic celebrity preacher. Um, you you aren't hired by that church. You are placed there by an institution, right? And similarly, brick and mortar buildings are not, um, shall we say, popularly built. They require a smaller team of people who are working in tight conjunction with each other off a common set of plans, mm. and not everybody gets to participate in the building of that of that institution, right? But that's part of where its stability comes from, and that mm. stability has pros and cons, right? We we refer to slavery as an institution, but the political institutions that are set up by our constitution ultimately were aspirational and eventually led to its to, to emancipation. In the same way, uh, the institution of, of Jim Crow uh, was both enabled by unhealthy institutions, and, and, and I would say far less than biblical, to say the least, yeah. church institutions in the South, but also uh, many of the advocacy, like uh, I think Matt Chandler in, in Flower Mound, Texas, made the point in a sermon during the, the uh, upheaval we experienced in the in the spring, in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, that the civil rights movement, the the marches, the peaceful protests flowed out of Sunday worship. And it was actually an orthodoxy that that catalyzed the, the civil rights movement. And so you see institutions, when they're healthy and and biblical, contributing to the, the common flourishing, uh, but when they are not uh, healthy or biblical in their purpose, it's detrimental to human society. Now, the 60s and 70s, this is super interesting because that is that is the beginning and a, a catalyst, the, the civil rights era and the sexual revolution that catalyzed a an anti-institutional bent that we are still experiencing today, a, a, a skepticism of institutions that's born out of both a valid uh, need to reform and greater transparency and trust, but also a, a growing individualism and expressive individualism that we're going to be exploring a lot in season three. And so right. that's part of the setting for this and the history and context that we are we have been moving away from for a while, but into a new reality and a new uh, account a set of counterfeit institutions that we have comparatively zero uh, acclimation to or understanding of how to navigate. Hmm. Yeah. So so brick and mortar institutions um, for for you know for some good reasons and maybe some not so great reasons are largely being supplanted now. We we don't tr- we don't trust them culturally. We don't trust them. And what's replacing that, what's rushing in to fill the gap is this networked age where social media, everybody's connected all the time at a moment's notice. I mean, it, it would be fascinating to see studies of this. I haven't I haven't um, seen this, but just how many people uh, found out even about the oh, man. Uh, insurrection on Twitter. I mean, that, that that's the first place I even heard about it. And so there, there, it, there's, um, the level of transparency and, and access, right. 
um, that that something like Twitter provides is incredible. The immediacy of, of information. It was interesting um, to be watching the news while looking at Twitter. And I'm kind of like, why is NBC so behind? Like, like they're getting picture, they're getting video from outside the Capitol. But on Twitter, I'm like seeing oh, the man. people actually you know, inside the building, you're seeing yeah. what's going on. And so it, there's a, there's a lot of promise that comes with social media and yet it's also producing some really, really negative results as well. Yeah. And, and this is, this is where, uh, what I said earlier around like trying to offer a perspective that, that, uh, a bit of a, a meta narrative that ties together a lot of the criticisms of social media because social media walked into a vacuum and an environment of distrust toward institutions in part because of institutional abuse. And what social media promises is this idea that you can be meaningfully connected, not just and, and not limited by geography, but you can you can express yourself without ever having to submit yourself to mm-hmm. formation. And this was, you know, we talked about this at the end of season two um, uh, with the episode entitled, uh, you know, A Time to Trust. And we talked about the uh, Brett McCracken's article on uh, the Gospel Coalition around institutions being about formation and social media being about affirmation. That is the environment that social media sprung up in. But in doing so, it has set itself up and kind of promised that you can have that meaningful identity through expression instead of submitting yourself to an institution. And and so the analogy that we've been using right is 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 a spider web because as you just said, Bryce, the the a thread being plucked from an ocean away will be felt and reverberate through each strand and each connection point across however many connections you have. And the more connections you have, the more likely that will happen. And so it, it doesn't just um, communicate or transfer information. It amplifies it. Mm-hmm. And it's dependent on your connections instead of your shared purpose. And that is part of the problem of social media functioning as a counterfeited institution and and our using it in that way because it it, it, it narrowly focuses our, uh, our, our purpose toward kind of whatever the connections end up having. Um, right. It's sell- it's telling you that you can be the spider and you can make your own connections and you are the master of your own domain. Uh, but the problem with it, and this is why Bryce, I took a, uh, hiatus from social media over advent, um, was because I made the mistake of watching the, the documentary, the social dilemma. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and the lie uh, that I, by the way, I think that that documentary is outstanding and even understated, but the lie we're believing is that we're the spider when in reality we're lunch. Oh man. And, and, and the, <laughs> the spider is an algorithm that does not have your good in mind yeah. as its purpose. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the, what's the phrase in there that there's only two groups that, um, two industries that refer to their customers as users, uh, drug addicts and social media platforms, yeah. uh, or, you know, drug dealers and social media platforms. And, um, yeah. And so that's, that's part of the problem is that, uh, the incentive structure of social media platforms is just to keep you engaged because they are selling our data and our, you know, attention to advertisers. Mm-hmm. 
but we think <laughs> we think we're engaging in social media uh, to be connected, to stay informed, to you know be, build community. Um, and so there's a the the incentive structure is at cross purposes, right? Those providing yeah. the the service are uh, have have one goal in mind, while those using the service have a different goal in mind. Absolutely, right. That's it, the definition of manipulation. Absolutely, and and what's what's so frustrating and and mal- actually malicious about it is how much, for example, Facebook especially says our goal is. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase and I'm going to, I'm going to, I don't want to like put words in Mark Zuckerberg's mouth, but functionally what he communicates is our goal is to be content agnostic um, because we want to only be about connection. Well, that's impossible because being content agnostic is, is, is a, it is an, is an epistemology. It's, a, it's right? a position. Yeah, it is. It, it is. It, yeah, and it's not an agnostic statement. Absolutely. Yeah, never mind that it's patently false. Yes. Yes. And when you combine that with the, the profit incentive, um, because the institutions are not motivated by profit, they're motivated by purpose. You see that like the difference between a social institution and social media is the social institution is community plus commitment, right? And, and a shared purpose. Social media, and this is the difference between media and institution, is a community plus attention with individual purpose. Mm-hmm. Those are like attention is a is one facet of commitment. You can be committed if you don't give a community your attention. Um, but the purpose, th- this is the lie. Facebook wants you to think it's your purpose that you are you are engaging on its platform. It's their purpose. It's mm. advertising. It's the algorithm operating in the background, making you think you're the spider when you're actually lunch. You're the your t- attention is the commodity. It is in every way, and this is why. Like I, I feel like I've had such a visceral reaction as we because this. If I had watched the social dilemma before we were exploring some of these themes in this podcast, I don't think I would be nearly so upset. Yeah, we'd be like, oh, this is interesting. I'll maybe cut back on my social media usage a little bit. Yeah. But when we when we understand how uh, this is, um, well, I mean, I have I don't know if we've said this yet, but th- this is this is where we're going. That that social media is forming is is functioning as a counter formational institution. Yes. Absolutely. Well, and, and here's here. Let me give you an example that illustrates how urgent this is. Okay. Imagine Bryce, right? As pastors, we know many people who have been legitimately, validly hurt and harmed by the institutional church through the abuse of power. Right. One of the few places where people who have been harmed and have to leave the community that they have called home, one of the places they most often flock Mm. to as a place of refuge is social media. I can't tell you how many people I'm connected to on Twitter who are openly processing. And I, I genuinely am glad. Yeah. But, but if, if, if the algorithm that is the spider puppeteering over your newsfeed is if you are finding more connections with people who are are also victims of abuse, you need to know that your pain and your heart is being leveraged to keep extracting your attention for advertiser profit. Yeah. There is social media is every bit as abusive and manipulative as the worst and most abusive and manipulative institutions you have in mind. The difference is it's a passive abuse and mm. 
it's in the background and it's better at concealing its motives. But functionally, wow. it's it's actually worse. Wow. Okay. So so what you're saying, and you, you said a lot more, but I want to try to sum up <laughs> yeah. some of is that um, as pastors, we've all seen people hurt by churches, which is horrible. Absolutely. Leave those institutions and find on social media other people who have had a very similar experience to them, which in some ways provide com provides comfort and healing because there's community, but it also echoes and magnifies and reinforces that sense of of hurt, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. And and sort of blaming uh, not just hurtful churches or pastors. Uh, or unhealthy churches and pastors, but like the institution of the church. Well, no, I mean, I think, yeah, the blame piece is a negative way that that happens because those are the posts that go viral. And I'm not saying that there shouldn't be the transparency that social media provides, um, but there are repercussions of it feeling like churches are far more abusive than not. And so that continues to shape perception away from trusting right. institutions right. Right. toward relying on social media. Yeah. Which is so self-serving. I'm sure that this dynamic has happened in other arenas too. Obviously, as pastors and as Christians, we're we're focusing, uh, you know, on the way that this is happening in the in the in the church universe. But so imagine if there was an event where, let's say, roughly a third of the country was connected um, through social media to a certain narrative about mm. certain facts, and roughly two-thirds of the country was connected to a different narrative about that same set of facts. And those two competing narratives about the facts in play, which have been reinforced over and over and over again through social media networks, comes to a head. Mm -hmm. That is exactly what our country experienced on yeah. January 6th and is continuing to experience. And who knows, even between now and we're talking and when we release this episode in a few days, who knows if there's going to be some other instance of this. But this is exactly what we're seeing play out. This is a fascinating, I read this this morning, the dispatch is morning, um, the morning dispatch great source of news this morning uh, had a had a great um, just article the alternate reality machine in which uh, they said this poll after poll finds that approximately three in four Republicans believe that there was widespread voter fraud in the presidential election that the contest was actually stolen now that narrative has been rejected by numerous courts it's been it's been um, there's been no evidence to substantiate that claim. And yet, according to many polls, three quarters of Republicans continue to believe it. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because not, not because Republicans are people who do, don't believe in facts, right? Mm -hmm. It's because they're connected through a social media web, a counter formational institution that is reinforcing the narrative of the worst case possible scenario. Yeah, this and, and, it, and that contributes to, in some ways, minimizing or in some cases, justifying or saying, oh, sure, the, the storming of the Capitol was awful. But what about the, you know, the progressive leaning riots over the summer, as if that somehow justifies, you know, further acts of violence? Well, and, and this this is yes. And this is so huge. And here's where, you know, what. Bryce, what you just read from the dispatch and what they're describing is like the 
climate change equivalent of melting ice caps and frequency of hurricanes increasing. Um, What's underneath that is what David French talked to us about in our interview with him when he was talking about the law of group dynamics, which Mm -hmm. is when you have um, people who uh, get together in a group or let's say an institution. The law of group polarization. Oh, yes. Yeah. uh, The law of group polarization. which says that if you get people together um, and and they are connected to one another and spend time together, then the the average view uh, will be more radical or more extreme at the end of that time than at the beginning of it. Um, that yeah. it's not an average of the sum of its parts. And he says this is why when you do a Bible study, you love Jesus more by the end of it, right? Mm, <laughs> like unless right. something's really wrong there. Um, but. This this is why when when social media becomes a counterfeit or replacement institution for traditional or like the formative purpose that institutions provide, that doesn't just affect our character in terms of what is being formed. It also affects our epistemology, our truth then, and how we interpret information and news becomes a tool for self-affirmation or self-expression, not a transcendent reality that we submit to because what social media enables us to do is to just click unfollow and stop listening to somebody instead of do business with information or reality that might cause us or force otherwise force us to change Mm -hmm. how we see the world. Yeah, rather than with humility, uh, you know, being confronted with the truth and uh, in humility saying, I guess I was wrong, we just unfollow. We throw, yeah. our, we throw our hands up in the air and say, I don't even know what to believe anymore. Yes. We believe the truth. And how okay. many pastors are across the country or out there who, are, who feel like they're constantly walking on eggshells for anything right. cultural or political right now and who are being told just preach the gospel because they're, be, they're actually more shaped by social media than the church they claim to be a member of. Right. But having for, you know, well, 2000 plus years, but especially for the last 30, 40, 50 years said Christians are people who stand on the truth. Pastors are now feeling like we're walking on eggshells by simply mm. stating the truth about what's going on, applying, you know, preaching the gospel and applying it to the realities of the times that we live in. Yeah. I don't know how social media doesn't eventually lead to just a nihilistic epistemology. Yeah. That is a function. Like it's not just moral relativism. It's this like, well, you can't, it's, it's, it's agnosticism to an extreme that you just can't know what is true. So I may as well pick one and I'm going to pick whatever affirms me the most. Okay. So then let's ask this question. What's the alternative? If, um, you know, we're living in this networked age where it's like we're, we're living in a spider web where everything affects everything in, in any traumatic event, you know, disrupts the entire system. Is the solution just to sort of drag people kicking and screaming back into a brick and mortar institutional age? Yeah. So that's one of, there's a a third way that we want to propose, right? Well, yeah, we wouldn't be, um, you know, Presbyterian Kellerites if we didn't have a third way, right? Um, (laughs) no, we, cause, cause the reality is too, uh, like neither of us are Luddites. You're listening to a podcast right now. If you, if you hear our (laughs) voice, right? Like it's not like the networked reality of social media is going to go away. If anything, it just reinforces the absolute societal importance of local institutions and especially grace-based ones, i.e. the church. Mm. And so what this means is because 
brick and mortar. See, I'm from St. Louis. I'm going to extend these analogies way too far. This is great. This is like, a, we should just name the, this episode overextended analogies. Um, but like I'm from St. Louis and brick is like a St. Louis thing. There's a particular bright red color brick that comes from Mississippi mud that is just beautiful. And I have, there's a deep place in my heart for it. And if the, uh, the fault line that St. Louis is built on that at one point caused an earthquake that made the Mississippi uh, River flow backwards for several days. If that ever hit post the industrial era in St. Louis, it, mm. the entire city would turn to dust. Brick and brick mortar, and mortar yeah. Apart. Brick and mortar does not stand up well when the it feels like the very earth is moving underneath you. And that is what culturally and socially it feels like to a lot of people right now. And that is the case on the left and the right, those with privilege and those who have never tasted it. That is part of the dynamic social change that is kind of leading to populism in Western in Eastern Europe, never mind the our own flavor in Trumpism. Like all of this is very much related and I don't blame social media for everything, but it is accelerating and amplifying accelerating. things that are already there. Yeah. Yeah. So what what has what what do we do? Because the if we're going to have any chance at restoring any trust in institutions, there it has to take a shape in a, in a form that is more transparent. Uh, it is more nimble and more easily adaptable. Uh, it can bend to the moving of the earth underneath it, but yet at the same time is going to protect those within from the wind and the rain. And it also has to do something that brick and mortar took for granted when our culture was far more Christianized, which is it needs to be able to create an environment inside of it, inside of itself for the sake of the environment outside of itself. And so the analogy you and I, have, we, we've come up with Bryce is, 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 is the greenhouse, yes. right? Yes. It's transparent. It provides uh, a space for, fra for fragile plants to come in and be nourished, watered. Yes, even pruned, um, but all mm. for the purpose of those plants being sent out and being planted in the environment outside of it once its roots are deep enough to be able to withstand the cultural and social press pressures and then provide shade for other people. Yeah, it provides shelter for, oh, that's good. I like that. Yeah, the greenhouse provides shelter from the storm in which life can be sustained and flourish so that it can then be taken outside and planted and, you know, provide goodness, beauty for those who have not had the benefit of the greenhouse environment. Absolutely. Yeah, because we we need to do, <laughs> we need to do some reforestation, uh, and that's only gonna that that's going to require some institutional help because it's not gonna it's just not gonna happen in in a counterfeit institution that is a spider web. It, mm -hmm. it, actually, spider webs, if you think about it, even like they spring up overnight, so they're super nimble and they kind of appear out of nowhere seemingly, but they're dependent on existing institutions to function like spider webs technically mm, are most commonly found in trees and in soil right yeah without the institutions the spider webs can't exist either and that's part of what we're experiencing right now is just the sheer instability of those two things converging at the well, same and, time and again at the risk of pushing the metaphor too far they are actually very easily destroyed uh, yes right. uh, they don't weather storms very well at all yeah whereas the greenhouse is you know, it's a structure, it provides shelter, it has a form, and yet uh, it's a fairly nimble form. 
You know, it can be moved. It can be uh, reshaped. Well, and uh, here's where here's where it, it is not just also it's not just that it can weather storms and be a better refuge than brick and mortar. Um, it is also important that what brick and mortar as a building kind of assumes, especially if you're talking about, you know, pre 20th century, that the materials themselves were meant to provide cooling in the uh, in the summer and retain warmth from the sun in the winter, right? It was supposed to be something that the, the, the cultural climate extremes would not like, it just didn't matter because there wasn't, there weren't those extremes on the contrast, a, a, a greenhouse is required for something to grow within itself. Whereas brick and mortar, like it just didn't, it's not required. It could grow outside. No problem. The, the, the most important part of this analogy with the greenhouse is that it is not just providing refuge. If it did, that would be mere affirmation that it is actually turning the sun's energy and its rays into warmth, to comfort, to help grow and to, to deliver energy to its leaves, the, the leaves of the plants. Like it is intended to be a space where plants are grown by the light of God and, and, and his word and pruned through the community that is gathered around it, because you are not a solitary. It's not just you, Jesus, and the Bible. You can't do that outside of the greenhouse anymore. And by the way, that's actually what's contributing to the need for a greenhouses anyway. Yeah. Amen. Pretty good. Yeah. So that's that's what it means to receive an identity. It means that we are not the source of our dignity, value, and worth. We receive it from the light of the sun uh, as the light of the word shines on us. But it also um, means being pruned by the community amongst which we are growing and flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. Season three is coming very soon where we'll continue to unpack this metaphor of greenhouse institutions. But I promise we're not going to introduce any more metaphors. That's all we can handle. But we want to talk about this because it's central to answering the question, how do we receive instead of achieve our identity? You won't want to miss it. We've got interviews with Carl Truman about his new book, Professor Alan Noble, Barry Corey from Biola University, Brandon O'Brien, a bunch more good stuff coming up. As we get ready for that over the next week, we are going to bring you a couple of bonus episodes, some of our favorites from season one that you may have missed if you're uh, new to our podcast. Please subscribe. New episodes are coming very soon right here on Everything Just Changed.